Well, it's a blessing to be here with family. Remember what Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers and sisters, those who do the will of God. So it's wonderful to be here among my brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We're delighted. Mitch and I are delighted to be here. Thank you for having us. Uh, I am instructed to release the children to Sunday school. <clears throat> and I'm also uh, to remind you that uh, there is an outline in the bulletin on page 9 if you care to follow along. All right, with that said, would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Let's ask the Lord to bless our time today. Father, we come to you because we recognize that uh, no matter how clear the theology or actually how clearly it's articulated, I'm not saying that about myself necessarily, but regardless, unless you build the house, they labor in vain who build it. We need your touch. We need you to work in our hearts today. We need you to minister your grace to us. We ask that you'd use your word to do that, that you would encourage us with the freedom that is ours in Christ. You would encourage those who are outside of Christ to desire that freedom. We thank you, Father, for this time. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, freedom. Everybody wants it. Kids want to grow up and, if you will, be free from their parents, in the right sense, of course. Workers want to retire and be free from their jobs. Cancer patients want to be cancer-free. Those in debt, they want to be debt-free. Those who are oppressed, they want to be free from economic or political bondage. Indeed, the entire cosmos groans to be free of the curse of sin and death. And we as believers, we're especially attuned to this notion of freedom and our understanding of being free from the sin that plagues each of us each day, sin that harms our families and divides our churches and often fills our individual lives with guilt and shame. We long to be free from the sin of lust, pornography, especially you men. We long to be free from the sin of fear and anxiety, perhaps especially you women. Free from the sin of anger and bitterness, free from an entitlement mentality, free from addictions like drugs and alcohol and food and video games and cell phones. My goodness. So this morning I want to help you, I hope to help you, to better understand and more consistently assert the freedom from sin that is already yours in Jesus Christ, if you know Him, as well as to help you more desperately groan for the freedom from sin that is yet to come. My contention is that much of our doctrine of conversion has caused us to begin this race of faith well behind the starting line. If we compare it to a football match, we could say it's like starting that match already down 
course, the Christian life is hard enough without starting with a handicap. And I believe that the biblical notion of freedom actually has the Christian up for nil at the start of life's battle with sin. So before jumping into that, let's just begin with some overall perspective on sin. And let me ask you a question. How would you define sin? That's a, a good catechism question, isn't it? How do we define sin? The Westminster, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 40, 24, asks that question, what is sin? And the answer, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. 1 John 3 verse 4 says it more simply, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, but what law does sin transgress? Well, you know the answer to that. What are the two great commandments Jesus asked the lawyer in Luke 10? Matthew 22, 34 to 40, he says it also there. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So sin is any failure to love God with your all or to love your neighbor as yourself. A failure to do either of those, that's the essence of sin. Of course, in the beginning, Adam and Eve were sinless. I'll be clear about what that means and what it doesn't mean. It means they were able to obey those two great commandments. But they were also, in their sinless state, able. They had the capacity to sin, didn't they? And of course, you know the story. They did, and they were cursed along with their posterity with death. Now, part of that curse was slavery, slavery to their sin. Romans 6, 17 says that we were slaves to sin. Those of us who have come to Christ, we were slaves to sin, one lacking freedom, completely under the control of another. That's what a slave is. As sinners in Adam, we were completely under sin's dominion, weren't we? But of course, that all changed, didn't it? When we believed in Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me to John chapter 8? John chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth book in the New Testament. Let me pick it up in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? But Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free you will be free indeed. Jesus had challenged their profession of faith. In effect, he said that though you profess faith, you're not truly free unless you abide in my word. That's what Jesus said in verses 31 and 32. In other words, unless they walk 
unless they practice not sin but obedience to him. He clearly lumps these professing Jews who by the end of chapter 8 will actually try to kill him. He clearly lumps them into the Ishmael camp, the son of the bondwoman. They're not free, they're slaves like Ishmael. But he says, but if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. One commentator uh, says that Jesus has set us free, and I quote, from both the guilt and the life-controlling power of sin. That is, Jesus has set those who have truly believed free from sin's penalty and free from sin's power. Well, here's the question. If we've been set free from the life-controlling power of sin, then why do we still sin? My wife asks me that question every day. Why do you still sin? Well, I've got a good theological answer for her. And let's just step back for a minute to understand our doctrine of redemption, our doctrine of salvation. In terms of the Trinity, we believe that the Father promised redemption. We believe that the Son secured that redemption. And we believe that the Spirit applies that redemption to our hearts by faith. Now that's an oversimplification, but it's kind of nice to kind of have those categories. We believe that the Spirit applies that redemption to our hearts by faith. But here's the kicker. In stages. It's not all one finished application, is it? We could look at two stages, the already stage and the not yet stage. The already stage is where sin's penalty is forgiven and sin's power is broken. Already that, ha- that has happened. The moment you believed, boom, your sins were forgiven. God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4 says, and sin's power was broken. You were no longer a slave to sin. Galatians 5.24, I've got 2.24 in your bulletin. 5.24 says that those who belong to Christ have what? Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's something that objectively happened to us the moment we believed. But then there's the not yet stage. Sin's presence, this is what I say to my wife, sin's presence has not yet been vanquished in me. That's why I still sin. That's why you still sin. And one of the things that proves that is we still have a constant struggle with sin. Sin is an ongoing problem in our lives, isn't it? There's no perfectionism short of heaven, is there? We still struggle with sin. That's why, as believers, we groan for the redemption of our bodies, Romans chapter 8. That's why we're commanded to mortify the deeds of the flesh, Colossians chapter 3. That's why we're even warned not to fall away from the living God and be hardened by what? By the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews chapter 3. All of that points us to the fact that we have an ongoing struggle with sin. Our redemption draweth nigh. It hasn't yet been completed. The work's been done, but the application of it has not been completed. Here's another way to say it. 
we continue to sin because there's something wrong with our spiritual vision. We don't see Christ clearly. This is a, a personal application or idea to me because I've had a lot of trouble with my vision oh, in the last five years or so. I, I think I started wearing glasses when I was like three years old or something. But I didn't have terrible vision. But then a number of years back, I had a detached retina. Now, some of you maybe know what that means. You may not know what it means. And I had the most serious type. So when I went into the hospital to be operated on, the doctor said, I can't promise you anything. You may come out and that eye will be blind, legally blind. We'll just have to see. Well, the good news is it's, it's not it didn't come out blind. The vision's distorted, and one of the effects of it all is I got double vision, but they've been able to correct that. See, there's twice as many people out there now. <laughs> what a crowd that's come to hear me preach. I can't believe the size of this crowd. They've been able to fix that with these special prism lenses, uh, but my vision's just not right. It's just not right, and that's just a that's just an illustration of, of a bigger problem. We've got a spiritual vision problem. Our spiritual vision is blurry. We don't see God clearly. We don't see Christ clearly. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that we see through a mirror dimly. We see through a glass, the old King James, we see through a glass darkly. We can see, but our vision is blurred. We're not able to see Christ as He is, and therefore we're not able to be like Him yet, completely. So that's our problem. It's an ongoing problem. It's the problem of sin's presence that has blurred our vision, that has caused us to continue to struggle with sin on a daily basis. I like this analogy from theologian Greg Beale. It's, it's, it's using World War II as a metaphor. Now, do you all know what I mean when I say D-Day? Do you know what I'm referring to when I refer to D-Day? Now, just in case there's some who don't, D-Day was the most significant event in the European theater of World War II. Up to D-Day, the war hung in the balance. But on D-Day, which was June 6th, 1944, the Allied forces, there were 12 different nations, Australia, Canada, U.S., and then nine European nations. They all aligned together, and they crossed the English Channel, and they landed on the beaches of Normandy. And that moment, that historic moment, turned the tide for World War II. Now, after D-Day, there was a lot of bitter fighting. But once the Allied forces were on the continent, there was no question in anybody's mind, including Germany, that the war was going to go the way of the Allies and not the way of Germany. Now, VE Day was still a year off. But that Bitter fighting didn't suggest that the war was not going to be won. Victory was assured. VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, was just around 
the corner. So let me suggest that if you want to understand our salvation, we have experienced the D-Day of our salvation. You and I have landed by faith in Jesus Christ. We're on the Normandy beaches, so to speak. Sin's penalty's been forgiven, sin's power's been broken, but we're not yet home. Sin has not yet been vanquished. Our fight with sin continues, but victory is assured. We're waiting confidently for VE Day when Christ returns. Okay, so sin's power's been broken, right? Are you with me there? That's clearly from Romans 6, 7, and 8. Yes, and it's not been broken partially, but fully. But there are passages, two in particular, which seem to teach a sort of half-freedom, as one theologian put it. And the question is, what should we do with those passages that don't seem to resonate with this idea of freedom? Well, let's look at the first one, a very controversial passage, Romans chapter 7. I'm only going to read a short portion of this, and we obviously, I mean, Aubrey said I had to be over by 3. I don't think I can do everything I want to do with that passage before 3 o'clock, so I'm going to have to greatly shorten what I'm going to do here with Romans, but let's do a little bit at least, maybe tease you, provoke you a little bit. And if you want to talk more about it later, perhaps we can. Romans chapter 7. I'm going to pick it up in verse 13 and read to verse 17. Romans 7, starting in verse 13. Paul says, Did that which is good, which is the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? Now remember back in verse 5, he said, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Uh Uh-oh, doesn't that sound like the law is a partner in crime, complicit in our death? That's the charge that Paul's trying to respond to. So he says, did that which is good, the law, which is holy and righteous and good, verse 12, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin through the commandment, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, I I wish really we could go to 3 o'clock because this passage is so rich and so misunderstood, in my opinion. This passage is part of the unit from Romans 5 through Romans 8, and its main thrust in this section is asserting that we should no longer, indeed, we can no longer continue in sin. And why is that? Why is it that we can no longer live a lifestyle of practicing sin? It's because sin's dominion has been broken by virtue of our union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Christ died for sins, and we died with Him by faith. 
And so sin's power has been broken. Believers are no longer slaves to sin, the Bible says, but slaves to righteousness. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free, Romans 8, 2, from the law of sin and death. By contrast, the Roman 7 man is self-described as of flesh, sold under sin. Did you see that in verse 14? Look at that again. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. One prominent theologian says, to be sold under sin is to be a slave to sin. So entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all our actions are under its influence. You see, the Romans 7 man is an unbeliever. He has no victory over sin. That's not you, dear one. You struggle with sin, but you're not a slave to sin. That's not who you are. Now, much more, much more could be said. But Romans 7 was designed to show one thing and one thing only, to show that it was sin, not the good law, that caused Paul's death. This passage in Romans 7 is trying to demonstrate what it was that brought condemnation onto the Apostle Paul. It really has nothing to do with believers and their walk in Christ. You struggle with sin, but you're not a slave to sin like the Roman 7 man. Now, some have objected. If you look at Romans chapter 7, verse 22, this is the main objection. I want to just touch on it. Verse 22 says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And many say, okay, there you have it. Unbelievers cannot delight in the law of God. That seals the deal. This must be a Christian. May I respectively beg to differ. Unbelievers can delight and have delighted and have desperately wanted to obey God's law. We see this in Exodus 19. We see this in Exodus 24. We see it in Deuteronomy 25. When they were confronted with the law, when the covenant was read, what did they say? What did the nation of Israel say? All that the Lord has commanded, we will do, and we will be obedient. And if you follow covenant renewals, like in Joshua 24 or 2 Kings 21, you'll see 2 Kings 23, you'll see that same idea. And yet, what do we know? Stay with me here. What do we know about the nation of Israel, that Exodus generation? What do we know about those people that were promising eagerly to obey the law, who delighted in the law, who with their whole beings committed themselves to obeying the covenant? What do we know about them? They were unbelievers. Hebrews 3 and 4 says that God laid them in the wilderness because of their unbelief, because they didn't believe the gospel. Hebrews 4 verse 2. They were unbelievers, and yet they were eager to do the law. They were willing to obey it, but they were unable to obey it because they were lost. They hadn't been set free. Well, that's the first verse that I think confuses us about the scope of our freedom. There's also another one in Galatians 5. Let's just look briefly at that. Galatians chapter 5. And I'll pick it up in verse 16. 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Let me just say this in summary. Believers, by definition, are those who are led by the Spirit. Romans 8, 14 says that those who are led by the Spirit, the same exact phrase as we have here in verse 18 of chapter 5 of Galatians, those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. It's an identity. What defines you as a Christian, dear one? That you're led by the Spirit. All Christians are led by the Spirit. Now, we're not talking about, you know, should I you know, uh, go here on my vacation or buy this house. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the, the force, the power that drives one's life. And for Christians, it's the Spirit of God. It's not the flesh, it's the Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says that if the Spirit dwells in you, that you're a believer. You're in the Spirit if the Spirit dwells in you. If the Spirit doesn't dwell in you, you're an unbeliever. You do not belong to Christ. So we could say it this way, if I kind of merge Galatians 5 and Romans chapter 8, we could say it this way, believers are those people who are in the Spirit, who are indwelt by the Spirit, who are according to the Spirit, who are led by the Spirit, who mind the things of the Spirit, and who walk by the Spirit. Now if you're hanging in there, I know we're getting into some tall grass, but if you're hanging in there, you should be asking this question. Well, Wes, if believers are those who walk by the Spirit, why is Paul commanding these believers to walk by the Spirit in verse 16? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Here's the answer. You have to remember that Paul is not talking to healthy Christians in these Galatian churches. Rather, he's talking to people that he's questioning their salvation. He said in chapter 4, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. He's fearing for their salvation. And why is that? Because they appear to be deserting the gospel, Galatians 1. They appear to be bewitched, Galatians 3. They appear to be near apostasy on the cusp of being severed from Christ, from falling from grace because they're seeking a justification system by law instead of by faith. And so Paul is trying to woo them back out of their near apostasy, back to a grace-spirit-faith system, because they're just about ready to jump into whole, whole hog, a law, flesh, and works system. Only the grace system can set them free. He is fighting for their very souls. You can't pull out from Galatians 5 normal Christian living. Do you see what I'm saying? You've got to allow that context to moderate your interpretation. So here it is. We struggle with sin, but we're not slaves to sin like those in Romans 7 or those near apostates in Galatians 5. We're not starting our journey against sin as Christians down 4-0. 
Isn't that discouraging? Would you like to play in a football match and before you even take the field, the score is 4-0? You're behind four goals? Boy, that's discouraging. No, listen to me. The Son has set us free. And thus He's enabled us to walk in newness of life through His Spirit. So what can we do as we leave here today What can we do to lean in to that freedom? What can we do, if you will, to exploit that gift of God's grace to be free from sin's penalty and to be free from sin's power? Two things. First of all, we can really lock down on our identity. We can be crystal clear on who we are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, You are members of the new covenant, which happened in the context of you becoming a new creature. What did Christ do when he died on the cross? He sealed the new covenant. When you take the Lord's Supper, what do you say? This blood is what? This cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ confirmed this covenant in his blood, and through it, you have become a new creation in Christ. Because God gave you, as Ezekiel 36 we read, as God gave you a new spirit, and that spirit has given you a new heart. This sounds kind of new, doesn't it? A new covenant, a new creation, a new spirit who gives you a new heart. And what is it about that new heart that makes it new? Well, it's a heart of flesh, yes. But it's a heart that's had sins, foreskin, circumcised. Now, we're a little squeamish about that, I understand. But it's in the Bible, so we need to get over that. What does it mean that he circumcised the foreskin of sin. He circumcised that which covered and controlled our hearts, which was sin. And when we believed the gospel, the Spirit came in, boom! He cut it off. And he wrote on those new hearts his law. That's the language of enablement. See, it used to be on tablets of stone. It was outside of us. It was right, but there was no power to obey it. And now he has written it on the tablets of human hearts, 2 Corinthians 3 says, which is the language of of enablement. Now he causes us to walk in newness of life, to carry out his statutes. That's who you are. You are new. You are brand new in Christ. And he has set you free. Well, what has he set you free to do? What's the overarching freedom that you need to exercise? He has set you free to see him. You see, before we were Christians, we did not see God. That's how the Bible describes us in 1 John 3, uh, 1 John Uh, uh, 3 John, I'm not sorry, 3 John 11. It says, we did evil because we'd not seen God. When you were freed, 
By God's grace, through Jesus Christ, you were now enabled to see God, to see Christ. You know, we sang, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and what happened? That ray of light, God diffused that ray, and what happened? I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I was able to see Christ. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn there with me for a minute. You see, you had a vision problem. You had a vision problem. You couldn't see because you were shrouded in darkness. You were children of darkness. I was a child of darkness. I couldn't see, and I loved the darkness. God reached in there and illumined me so that now I can see. And look what it says in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Have you ever heard the phrase, you are what you eat? Have you heard that phrase before? You know, that's not true. You're not what you eat. It's kind of a silly phrase, isn't it? You're not what you eat, but you are what you behold. You're becoming what you behold. And the freedom that God has given you when He forgave sin's penalty, when He broke sin's power in your life, is the freedom to behold Him. Not perfectly. Our vision is still not, it's not perfect. We see through a mirror dimly. We see through a glass darkly. But we've begun to see the glory of the triune God in the face of Christ, haven't we? And as a result, we've begun to be transformed into that glory, into His image. This is the first installment, if you will, of something called the beatific vision. Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, said this about it. He said, the vision is beatific. That is, it beautifies. It transforms the soul into the divine image, transfusing into it the divine life so that it is filled with the fullness of God. We behold Christ. We behold Him. You know, they beheld Him in Numbers chapter 21, the pole with the serpent on it, and they beheld, they gazed at that, and what happened? They were healed. They were saved. But we now, with unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord and are transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another. That's the freedom that we have. How do we do it? How do we behold Christ? I think a number of ways we can behold Him in creation. You know, I know that here and in Dubai, they're actually making little island resorts, aren't they? They're they're making islands, right? Yeah, but they're not making the Persian Gulf, are they? They're not making great oceans in the world, are they? Nope. They're not making the heavens, which declare the glory of God in Christ. They're not making man. 
God's very image. You see, when you and I gaze on creation, we are now free to behold in it our great triune God who is showing himself in the face of the one through whom all things were created that have been created, Jesus Christ. That's the proper way of viewing creation, isn't it? Or we can behold him in the church because the Lord Jesus Christ indwells every believer. We see him in each sacrifice of love, in each act of forbearance and forgiveness, in each resolve by our brothers and sisters to do all that they do to his glory. But most of all, most of all, brothers and sisters, we behold him in his death, burial, and resurrection, revealed through the word as we hear it preached and see it presented through the Lord's table. This is why our weekly gathering is so critical. Right here is the primary venue where you behold Christ and are transformed into his glory, into his image. I think we also see him through our own personal reading and memorizing and studying and meditating on Christ in all of Scripture, because indeed all of Scripture points to him. The Bible is about Jesus Christ, and as we behold him across the pages of Scripture, we increasingly become like him. And as we behold him, it opens up new vistas of freedom. We recognize that we're free to be like Christ in his obedience, in his thanksgiving, and in his groaning for the consummation. Let me close with those three areas of freedom. Dear Christian, do you know that you are free to obey God? Jesus Christ always did the things that were pleasing to the Father. He was obedient. He was tempted in all things, yet without sin. And if we're going to be conformed to his image, we will increasingly be obedient. You and I are free right now. If you know Jesus Christ, you are free to walk in newness of life. You are free to present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and blameless. You are free to present your members as instruments of righteousness, thus mortifying the deeds of the flesh. You're free to do that. Listen to me. You are no longer, dear one, you are no longer a slave to your emotions. You are no longer a slave to your past. You're no longer a slave to those besetting sins that so easily entangle you. And you know what those are. You know the things that are, you're particularly prone to disobey God's word on. You know what those are. No, the Son has made you free. You're free indeed. A second freedom that I think comes clear from beholding Christ is the freedom to praise God, to thank God, Jesus, you know, did that. That's what Psalm 22, 22 says. That's what Hebrews 2, 12 says. Jesus is praising God among the congregation because God answered his prayer when he prayed to be raised from the dead, to be saved from death in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. We're free to do that. You know, in a sense, you know what I'm saying? We're free to be happy. 
we're free to be joyful. I don't know about you, but I have trouble believing that because there's an awful lot of things that make me unhappy. I'm, I'm probably just prone to being grumpy. And now I'm, I'm getting older, so you know what that means, grumpy old man. Who wants to be around someone like that? Not me. We are free to be joyful because as we focus on what God has done, what has He done? He saved us from sin's penalty. He's released us from sin's power. He has given the freedom to give Him the praise that He's due, right? And you know, when you read the Psalms, you don't get any polite praise in there, do you? They're singing, they're dancing, they're shouting, hallelujah, hallelujah. We have Psalms, whole sets of Psalms that are called what? The hallelujah Psalms, right? We're not just coming in, you know, well, I guess I'm just going to praise God today. Hope nobody notices me. No, you don't, you don't get that picture from Revelation, do you? No, the 24 elders, they're on their faces. They're praising God. We're free to do that. You're free to do that even when you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. You are free to give thanks to God because even that valley is His goodwill for you to sanctify you, isn't it? He didn't make a mistake. He didn't say, ooh, I lost track of that, that saint quick see if I can do something to fix it no he's you know every joy and sorrow every joy and trial falleth from where it falleth from above he sanctifies to us our deepest distress doesn't he we're free to give praise to God rejoice always pray without ceasing in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus you're free to do that Try it. And then finally, we're free to groan. You say, well, I, I like to groan. Well, here's, here's good news. There's a proper outlet for your groaning. We're groaning to see him face to face. We're groaning from that day when, when sin will be finally vanquished and we can see him as he is and be like him. You see, if we're to be conformed to his image, we must follow our Savior's example. You know, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and, 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 and supplications with loud crying and tears that he might be saved from death to the one who could save him from death. We got to follow him because death has not yet been vanquished, has it? If the Lord tarries, we're all, we're all going to die, aren't we? And we're groaning. We're asking God to deliver us from death. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. We beg the Son, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're wanting death to be put under His feet, the last enemy. We're pleading with God for the trumpet blast to be heard because that trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. You see, this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And when that happens, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Aren't you groaning for that? Aren't you longing for Jesus to come back and finally do away with sin and death? 
when we can then mock death and say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Yes, we're groaning for that. We're groaning. We're pressing forward to the resurrection of the dead. That's right. I say to you, O oh, beloved, assert your freedom to groan. Now, I want to just say a word to those who are here that are outside of Christ. We've been talking about freedom. And the Bible says that if you're outside of Christ, you are not free. You are still a slave. And I don't know what your particular sins are. It kind of doesn't matter. But I want you to understand, you cannot make a material improvement in your life. Oh, you might be able to dress up the photograph a little bit. But your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And you need to be liberated, set free. And Jesus Christ has a monopoly on freedom. He's the only one through his death, burial, and resurrection that can set you free. I say to you, don't wait. Don't wait. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. If you lived in Syria or if you lived in Turkey and that earthquake hit, they weren't expecting to die that day, were they? None of those people thought, boom, their life is over. Just like that. Don't presume upon your time. You don't know what a day may bring forth. But you do know there is a Savior who came to die for sinners like you and rose again on the third day for your justification. If you'll but turn to Him, He will set you free. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then for my brothers and sisters, as new creations, let me encourage you. You are no longer slaves to sin. You are free to walk in newness of life, mortifying the deeds of the flesh. Now, be, to be sure, it's no walk in the park. Yes, we have already achieved D-Day by His grace. And already the score is 4-0. But it's still a bitter fight, a fight to the death with sin until our victory finally appears. But that victory is assured. Satan is doomed. Sin is nearly extinct in God's timetable. And you and I shall live forever with our beloved. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Son has set us free. So let us exercise that freedom to behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ, which transforms us into His image and specifically enables us to obey regularly, to give thanks effusively, and to groan desperately for the consummation. Beloved, you are free to be like Christ, not perfectly, but increasingly. Embrace that freedom seize that freedom, walk in that freedom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the liberation that you have achieved through your dear Son. I thank you that we've been saved, we're being saved, and we shall be saved. 
And I pray, Father, that you would allow us to glory in this freedom from sin's penalty and from sin's power and to ache for the freedom from sin's presence that will come upon the appearing of your Son. We thank you for all these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.